cooperative security requires a degree of empathy. To understand that the other side may have uh, a different history, a different culture, different perceptions, different interests, wants to be treated with dignity and respect. Hi everyone, my name is Natalie Alexander. I work here at the UN Library and Archives Geneva, and this is The Next Page, our podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. In today's episode, our director, Francesco Pisano, is joined by Ambassador Thomas Greminger, the director of the Geneva Centre for Security Policy, also known as the GCSP. Their conversation explores the concept of cooperative security. What does this mean and where is it applied, especially when we consider multilateralism? Ambassador Greminger explores the paradox that while we're facing an increasing amount of security challenges and risks that can only be solved collaboratively, there is at the same time a growing skepticism of multilateralism. He also explains the GCSP's role in forging this cooperative security. And as we continue to face the pandemic and many global challenges, this conversation is pertinent to reflect on. Let's take a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to, to this new episode of The Next Page, the podcast to advance the conversation on multilateralism. I'm very pleased today to have with me in front of me in the studio, Ambassador Thomas Greminger, who is the director, relatively new director, of the Geneva Center for Security Policy, the GCSP, which is located just across the street, is one of our esteemed neighbors here in the international Geneva. Ambassador Greminger has worked as Secretary General of the Organization for the Security Cooperation in Europe from 2017 until 2020. Then in May 2021, uh, he took over as Director of the Geneva Center for Security Policy, of which I am an alumnus because I got training there. It's excellent training. It's, it's fantastic what they do in this center. And we'll hear more about the ambassador himself. So, Ambassador Greminger, welcome to the podcast. And I wanted to just invite you to say a little bit about yourself to our audience because between your PhD in history and this assignment you're holding now, you have navigated through an incredible career of many positions of diplomatic level, multilateral levels, etc. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a Swiss career diplomat with a relatively particular career. I basically did two things uh, in my professional life. I spent uh, a lot of uh, time on uh, development-related issues, development policy, development cooperation, and on, on peace and security. These were the two red threats uh, through my professional career. Um, highlights, I was uh, for relatively young in my career, I was head of the policy unit of the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, uh, and then the head of our mission in, in Mozambique, which implied two, two tasks. On the one hand, I was head of the diplomatic mission, but mainly I ran the biggest cooperation program of Switzerland back then uh, in, in, in Mozambique. A very exciting challenge. 
And, and then uh, I came back uh, to Bern and uh, had the pleasure of working together with uh, today's ICRC president, Peter Mauro. I was his deputy at the helm of uh, the political division for uh, political division for human security, as it became uh, quite known. This was uh, the pioneering days of, of this department. Uh, we built it up to, I think, uh, quite an impressive tool for promoting peace, uh, mediating uh, in, in conflicts, but also promoting human rights policies, humanitarian and migration policies of, of uh, progressive uh, nature. I did that for eight and a half years uh, and then came my next phase, the OEC phase. Uh, I was sent to Vienna as a permanent representative to multilateral organizations in Vienna. And initially, I covered both UN and the Organization for Security and Cooperation. So I was active on both sides of the Danube. But then we, in the course of 2011, started preparing Switzerland's OEC chairmanship in 2014, and this then meant that I would focus more, more on OEC matters. Uh, and indeed, in 2014, uh, Switzerland then chaired the organization. I became uh, chair of the Permanent Council, and as you recall, this was the time of the Ukraine crisis. So I was very, very closely involved in, in managing the crisis in around Ukraine. I left Vienna 2015, uh, got back to Bern, and became the Deputy Director General of the Swiss Agency for Development Cooperation. And I was then for two years in charge uh, of development cooperation with the South. The South branch uh, of SDC was my uh, sphere of responsibility. And, and then, uh, well, the chance to run for Secretary General, for the Secretary General position uh, came up. Uh, I uh, submitted my candidature and uh, was fortunately successful. And now uh, was for one term, uh, three years, uh, Secretary General in a very challenging uh, environment, of course. Uh, but I guess we'll come back to that uh, later in our conversation. And, uh, well, last summer, uh, my mandate was, uh, as the mandates for all four uh, leadership uh, positions of the OEC were not extended, and so I eventually then decided uh, to uh, come back to Switzerland, and now for two months I'm the director of the Geneva Center for Security Policy and happy to be here in Geneva. And we're happy to, to have you back here in Geneva. What an amazing career. What an amazing career, Ambassador. So let's, um, for the benefit of the audience, talk a little bit about the Geneva Center for Security Policy. As I said before, I took training there. I was very impressed with, with the range of topics, the, the professional level of, uh, of the trainers there, and the quality of the issues. There are four pillars at the center. When you look at, at your website, what comes through um, quite clearly is these four pillars, and I'm going to mention them for, for the audience, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit why you choose these four and what they mean for you as an institution. So the first is we educate. And the second is we facilitate. Then we analyze, and then we inspire. And so these are really four pillars, and your activities basically cut across these four 
areas uh, in which you concentrate your, your, your professionalism and your people. Tell us a little bit about what the centre does in these areas and what they mean to you. With pleasure. Uh, we Educate stands for uh, a platform for executive education. We educate more than uh, 1,300 professionals uh, from more than 160 uh, countries annually. Our target audience would be mid-career professionals, uh, politicians, diplomats, military officers, but also more and more representatives of international organizations, the corporate sector, uh, NGOs, uh, so really a multi-stakeholder uh, audience. Uh, we offer a few flagship long-term courses, uh, one the longest even uh, combined with an executive master degree, but the bulk of our courses are uh, relatively short, one, two weeks, four to six uh, uh, weeks. Uh, many of these courses are customized for specific uh, clients, as for instance, uh, UN organizations. We do, for instance, leadership training for WHO. We've uh, been doing leadership uh, training for WTO. So uh, customized trainings uh, represent uh, more than half of our uh, training activities. We facilitate stands for uh, the GCSB as a platform for inclusive dialogue. We offer track two, track one and a half dialogue platforms, both with a um, regional focus. We, for instance, have a, a process that is called Sermat Roundtable that focuses on the Korean Peninsula. We have another process that is called Champesy Roundtable, focusing on arms control and, and the European security. There are also processes focusing on, on conflicts. There is a track two on, on Syria. There is dialogue between American and Russian experts on, on, on Syria. So, so basically trying to support formal official processes on a level uh, or half a level below. That's uh, the idea of our dialogue facilitation activities. We analyze that uh, is the classical think tank mandate. That, that is, we offer policy advice in, in a number of distinct uh, security areas. I think we are particularly strong when it comes to uh, leadership, um, crisis management, uh, cyber emerging disruptive technologies, uh, arms control. Uh, these are areas where we are capable of offering uh, policy advice. We inspire these points to uh, a fellowship program that we have, inviting younger, mid-career, but also end-of-career career professionals that want uh, to work uh, at our centre virtually or in person, and contributing also to uh, our activities through uh, making their expertise available. We Inspire implies also that we are an incub incubation platform. If you have a brilliant idea that is not entirely mature yet, uh, you can submit uh, your proposal to us. We look at it and help you then to develop it and, and hopefully to graduate it and, and bring it to uh, Often it is an institutional setup that is needed. Funds are often also needed. So that would be uh, traditionally what, what makes part of an incubation. There is a, a fifth element that I should mention, and that is we try to connect. We try to connect our alumni. 
we have more than 9,000 uh, alumni. And while this is an old idea to capitalize on what potential 9,000 alumni imply, we have only started relatively recently to exploit that potential. So we try to bring them together, uh, to encourage them to use their expertise, to share it with other uh, alumni. We have created regional hubs. Uh, we have more than 20, some very active, some a bit less. But this uh, connecting function is a relatively recent uh, fifth pillar of GCSP. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that as one of them, I look forward to any activities you may organize for this Abdul Night. 9,000 is an impressive number of, uh, of professionals in the area of multilateralism. So let me ask you this. I'm, I'm very curious. I hope the, our audience is also curious about that. But I, I seem to know that there is an interesting story behind the creation of the center itself. And it dates back to the first Geneva presidential summit between U.S. and Russia back in 18... Sorry, in 1985 here in Geneva. Since we're just we're recording this episode in 2021, just after a few weeks after the second presidential summit here between President Biden and President Putin, why don't you share the story with our audience? What happened in 85? It's correct. It's a, a long-term consequence of the. I, I would underline long-term consequence uh, of uh, the uh, 1985 summit, so the second uh, summit, U.S.-Russian uh, summit. Well, in 1985, Swiss authorities, when organizing the summit, they realized mm -hmm. that they have hardly any security policy expertise uh, inside the Swiss administration. So they decided to... Um, launch a course that would build up gradually this expertise within the Swiss administration. This course was uh, called Security Policy Course and then gradually developed into uh, a success story that also uh, attracted international participation and, and, and became, I would say, the nucleus of what later then uh, became the Geneva Center for Security Policy. And then uh, in uh, 1995, the then president of the Swiss Confederation and minister of defense had, had a vision. He wanted to offer to the international community a number of centers that offer expertise in the security field writ large uh, because a year before the Swiss people turned down a referendum that would have allowed the Swiss military to make uh, soldiers, armed soldiers available for international peacekeeping. So in a way, if you want, it was politically compensating for these constraints to offer troops to international peacekeeping that the three Geneva centers, the Center for Humanitarian Demining, but the Center also for Democratic Control of Armed Forces, a leading think tank for security sector reform and governance today, and my center, the GCSP, were created. And gradually, then, these centers expanded their activities. And initially, we had a governing board, a board of trustees, a foundation council, as it is called in Switzerland, of 11 nations. And today, this has grown to a foundation council of 53 members. 
And uh, I should say that all P5 are represented in the Foundation Council of GCSB. Uh, and I'm quite, quite proud of that. And then perhaps a last element that I should mention here when we talk about the history in 2014 then, at the Maison de la Paix was the House of Peace uh, uh, was finished and the centers moved into this state-of-the-art class structure in the heart of international uh, Geneva and, of course, allowed another expansion uh, of the activities, uh, not only of my center, but also of, of everybody else. And here we are today with the center that is, is, is a major pole of attraction, uh, here in International Geneva, situated in this Maison de la Paix, the House of Peace, where a number of other very important organizations here in Geneva, including the Graduate Institute, for example, um, have their headquarters. Let's tell a little bit more on the, on the center. One of the striking things about your center is that it covers a wide range of, of topics. You, you talked about your areas of expertise, educating, facilitating, analytical, inspiring, and connecting. But when one looks at the amazing range of, of topics, they, they range from, from arms control, in alphabetical order, to transformative technologies. There are some, you know, a dozen of them. I'd like to ask you, what's trending now, and where do you see potential in the immediate future of, of, among these, these areas that you cover? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. We have a very broad understanding of, of security. It's a concept that is clearly multidimensional. And this is also why we uh, have a, a total of 16 thematic clusters. And, you know, I wouldn't pretend that we are in all 16 clusters equally good in terms of in-house expertise. But we find it very important that we have this comprehensive understanding of security. And we are very much also a facilitator. In our courses, we have normally more than a thousand speakers that we mobilize through our network to make sure that in all fields we can offer the top experts, the top panelists for our trainings. Now, when it comes to in-house expertise, the areas where we are really strong in, I would clearly mention leadership, I would mention crisis management, and here we also cooperate very closely with UN agencies. Strategic foresight has become an important issue. Climate change and environmental security has, has tremendously gained in relevance. Then disruptive emerging technologies, cyber clearly. But then, you know, also conventional stuff like uh, military risk reduction, arms control remains uh, very important. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying hard to also offer relevant expertise at the GCSB, GCSB for these more traditional security risks. Thank you for, for these elements. It, it remains very impressive to see how you're able to harness all these different dimensions of, of security. So congratulations there. Let's come to the deep dive of the episode. And for this episode, the, 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 the topic we selected together with you for the deep dive is the concept of cooperative security. So you're a security specialist, the center specializes in security. When, when people like me and many more in our audience talk and think about security, what they figure is in the brains is, is systems and protocols that are basically centrally managed. But there is this new tendency 
to look at security as a participatory process, uh, hence the term of uh, cooperative uh, security. And you came to, to talk to us today and, and to give an opportunity to the audience to learn about this, this concept and where it applies. So let's start right there. Let's start from what it means, what's the definition of cooperative security and in which domains this type of security is applied. The definition of cooperative security is, at the outset, quite simple. It means that states work together to address common security risks. And it's a new but also a very old concept. And contrary to collective security, cooperative security is not about forging a defensive alliance against someone, but it is about who do we need to cooperate with to respond to particular security challenges. If you think there is a broad range of security risks where states need to cooperate, I referred before to climate change and environmental degradation, the regulatory needs in the framework of technological change, artificial intelligence, its impact on our lives, coping with large flows of refugees and migrants, arms control, transnational organized crime, cyber threats, nuclear safety, pandemics, uh, you name it, uh, I could go on. And what is obvious that no state, not even the most powerful, can deal with these uh, challenges on, on its own. So they can only be successfully and sustainably addressed through cooperation. And, and I think for most current security challenges, either there is a cooperative solution or there is, a, or there is no solution at all. And, and UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres put it, I think this was the UN General Assembly uh, a couple of years ago, uh, he said... In an interconnected world, it is time to recognize a simple truth. Solidarity is self-interest. And I think this uh, encapsulates the essence of, of cooperative security extremely well. And look, COVID-19 is a stark reminder and also a powerful signal for cooperative security. At the same time, as we know, the virus does not stop at any borders. Uh, it is not stopped by propaganda. And I think the spread of the pandemic has clearly shown the importance of cooperation within communities, between states, and as an international community. Cooperative security is very much about conceptualizing security together. It would encourage states to jointly identify and prevent threats, rather than to counter them through a deterrence or the use of force. And if I were to list a few uh, key features, it, I would in, indeed start uh, by establishing elements of common threat perception. I think that's a very important as a starting point. It's then restraint. Restraint is a key con concept, restraint by all parties. Privileging dialogue and conflict prevention over, again, the use of force. An interaction based on principles principles that have been defined by the parties themselves. Good neighborly relations and minimally a gradual move towards peaceful coexistence. And, and, and then also sovereign equality by all parties. I think this is another important feature of, of cooperative uh, security. 
And I think cooperative security requires a degree of empathy to understand that the other side may have a different history, a different culture, different perceptions, different interests, wants to be treated with dignity and respect. I think trust building is very important. Confidence building measures are a key tool in cooperative security. Predictability, reciprocity, and I think at the end of the day also pragmatism. So this concept has the potential, and this is a question I'm putting to you, do you think that this, this type of cooperation in security has the potential to change international relations and processes today in our world, given the fact that a lot of the security threats are now systemic? You mentioned a few, you know, starting with climate change, I think it's the most evident, um, but also you know, the global migration crisis and things like that. So you just mentioned that these are best uh, addressed together in a cooperative manner. I think there's no, there's no, there's no uh, you know, contra- co- contention there. So it's as if the landscape of international relations is more ready now to collaborative and cooperative security than it was before. Do you see that from the, the observation deck of the, of, the, of the center, or do you see more a struggle to almost teach cooperative security to countries that are still driven by the pursuit of strategic domestic interest at the expense of other countries, of course. First of all, I would say cooperative security has a track record. I think it has helped us uh, to survive the Cold War. It has, I believe, contributed very substantively that we came out of the Cold War. And also over the last 30 years, I think, uh, when you think uh, at this uh, web of arms control agreements that have provided us with relative peace and stability over the last 30 years, I would argue there is a track record. It has uh, worked uh, to a certain extent. But what we have been seeing over, well, at least the last decade, if not, well, I'm tempted to say the last two decades, is an increasing polarization. And, and I think today relations between the key stakeholders in international security have reached a varying degree of polarization. And on the other hand, as you rightly say, practically all security risks are of systemic nature, can only be tackled by cooperation, so I think we need another approach if we want to address these challenges successfully. I think we don't have many alternatives than to, again, cooperate. And this takes us again to this concept of cooperative security. And also to the concept of multilateralism. We'll talk about that in a, in, in a few minutes. But let's stay with the centre and the concept of uh, uh, cooperative security for just one last uh, part of this conversation on this concept. I wanted to ask you to tell our audience what the center does in practical terms for and on cooperative security. What is your role? And also, if you may, tell us a little bit if in that role there is a nascent or, or, or historical partnership with the UN, because I think that the UN has a lot to gain from a cooperative way of doing security. 
Well, absolutely. Well, I, I would argue that practically everything that we do at the center is inspired by this cooperative mindset. We are educating future leaders in the spirit of cooperation. We offer safe spaces for, for dialogue and cooperation, and also that the, the fellowships, the ideas that we uh, offer incubation for, I think they're also this, the, the cooperative nature is, is absolutely uh, key uh, to, to, to all of them. We are partnering in executification, but also when it comes uh, to dialogue promotion very closely and, and quite systematically with the United Nations, which is not to say you know, that there is not further p- potential uh, to exploit. And as a matter of fact, I, this is clearly also my personal ambition. I have, of course, as Secretary-General of the OEC, worked extremely closely with the UN in conflict resolution, but also in other relevant security areas. And I've come to realize what the potential there is in this cooperation. And, and so I would definitely also want to use my network, my access to key UN figures to further uh, this partnership between the GCSB and the UN. Let's talk about multilateralism. As you know, our podcast is all about advancing the conversation on multilateralism. We're very proud of that. And this comes from our genetic material that the podcast is made of, which is Library and Archives. We've been here since 1919 doing just that, talking and advancing the conversation on multilateralism. And whenever I have a guest like you, who's known for being a strong supporter of multilateralism, it's so interesting to to talk about the topic. Um, so you've done a lot. I, I read on your bio, and I also uh, know uh, from, from other colleagues of yours that you've done a lot to sustain and support the cause of multilateralism, both as deputy of the Swiss Development Corporation, but also as, as and especially as Secretary uh, General of, uh, of uh, OEC. So I wanted to ask you, Ambassador, what do you think of the current international landscape, this level of cooperation and the appetite for multilateralism today in general terms, but also specifically regarding security policy in the security landscape? I think living in a time, there is, I mean, we hear often this reference to the crisis for multilateralism and, and clearly also based on my experience as Secretary General of the OEC, there is something to it. Unilateral transactional approaches have been dominating uh, recent years. Uh, there is this widespread scepticism towards multilateral institutions, towards multilateral mechanisms to address uh, global problems. And, and, and I think what strikes me most is, is that we are facing this paradox. On the one hand, uh, as we have discussed before, we are confronted with more and more security risks that can only be uh, addressed successfully in cooperation. But at the same time, there is uh, this multilateral skepticism, there is shrinking space for dialogue, there is, yeah, frankly, little uh, appetite for, for cooperation. And I think that's the environment we uh, currently work in. Okay, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think I do hope that the choice of Geneva as a multilateral hub for 
the summit of Presidents Biden and Putin is also a signal for a turnaround uh, towards, again, more trust in multilateral approaches, institutions, uh, tools, and that we need, again, more leadership, including also leadership by the key stakeholders of international affairs for multilateralism. But, but clearly, in recent years, it has been extremely challenging. And also the polarizing environment, the polarization between major powers has contributed to yeah, what we often refer to, and, and rightly so, I'm, I'm afraid, as crisis of multilateralism. I wanted to also bring up another experience that you had. Um, I know from, 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 from reading around, around your biography that you led a process of change in the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe. And as a passionate observer of international organizations, and I did some studies there also in my early years, International organizations are particular organizations that have a particular problem with change and adaptation to change. So there is this delay. They look, they look stuck in time. They're not, by all means, but they look stuck in time because there is a delay between, between change and, how, and their reaction to change and then how they choose to react to that change. So adapting to the challenge, adapting to change, seems to be a big thing, a big thing for, for international organizations. So I wanted to have your, your, your experience um, told to the audience through this podcast about what it takes to accompany or even lead change in large organizations like, uh, like OEC or any international organization, no one in particular, but in general, the species of international organization, IOs, as we say in our jargon. First of all, uh, I just want to uh, underscore your point of how important it is to constantly uh, reform multilateral mechanisms, organizations, uh, to make sure that they're fit, fit for purpose. And, and I had, at different stages of my career, opportunities to contribute to that. One of the more spectacular uh, reform efforts I was involved with, uh, I was uh, as uh, department director, human security department director in the Swiss Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I led the initiative that took us to the creation of the UN Human Rights Council because we saw, you know, uh, a struggling UN Commission and, and we felt the Commission did not have an appropriate weight when it came to positioning human rights in the international system. And well, it was, of course, also partly motivated by making sure that, you know, Geneva kept up to, uh, up to speed. And uh, so we launched this initiative. And it, it was a process that all in all took three years until the commission was, uh, the, the council was, was created. And, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you, need, you need leadership, you need committed also persons, it's human beings, uh, but then, of course, you need political will by, by member states. There is nothing that can substitute for political will by member states. And, and this is obviously also true for my attempts. Uh, I launched early in, in 2018 a relatively ambitious reform agenda uh, in the OEC uh, entitled Fit for Purpose. Uh, it contained a number of rather political, but also a lot of political a lot of technical items 
And for two and a half years, I worked very extensively with the Secretariat, but also with participating states on implementing this agenda. And I must say, those that believe that the OEC is immune to reform, they were proven wrong. We managed to implement quite a number of uh, reforms. For instance, I conducted a very comprehensive management review of the OEC, of a secretariat that had grown organically over 25 years, was never looked at critically in the way processes were structured, in, in the way uh, the uh, organizational uh, chart was defined. I did that, and, and I think we managed to uh, implement the bulk of the proposals and, and thereby clearly promoted effectiveness and efficiency and, and, and impact of the organization. Having said so, there were also important measures that we did not manage to uh, pull through. And many of the measures that we failed to implement or where we did not get as far as we uh, had wished were measures where we needed the buy-in of participating states. And, and, and yeah, this takes me again to the point of political will, political leadership, interest by capitals for what is happening in, in, a, in, a, in an organization. Often you are uh, on the technical level, you're stuck, and, and then you need political will, you need capitals to come in and help you overcome stumbling blocks. And if this happens, you can pull through a reform. If it doesn't happen, you, you get stuck. So uh, at the end, there is only so much that you can do as an international organization without the buy-in by, by member states. Having said so, I would also argue that there is, of course, a responsibility for international organizations to constantly keep uh, adapting to evolving challenges and I think there is never a time for complacency. Many important points you, you, you make there, and uh, so many that are so timely and relevant for, for the UN system in general, but also for the UN Secretariat in particular. So thank you for sharing your experience with us and with our audience so openly. Thank you. Thank you so much. As we wrap up this episode, Ambassador, any final thoughts that you wish our audience to remember? on what you do, your experience, or the center, or the concept of, of uh, cooperative security? When my, my message to, in particular, political stakeholders, politicians, uh, is that they should take better care of multilateral uh, institutions and, and mechanisms, uh, and we need leaders that are ready to, to invest political capital in them, if we want to be capable to tackle the global challenges of the future. And even though often it does not sell immediately in, in elections back home, at least not in the short term, but in the medium to long term, uh, I believe uh, it, it, it will pay off. And uh, I think it's this kind of political leadership that we currently need if we want to safeguard or strengthen or even expand our multilateral toolbox. Good points. Thank you. Good points there. Where can we and our audience find more about uh, the Center, the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and maybe any advice on web resources, other knowledge sources concerning your area of expertise? 
I think we have easily accessible web page and this basically then also takes you to whatever you want to know and well if not as as as, as soon as we can again meet in person why don't you come by the maison de la paix is i think is a spectacular site and uh, so why don't you uh, come and see us thank you so much and there will be in the in the notes to this episode of the podcast for those who who take time to go on the web and look for that there will be a number of, of links there to your center and to various sources of, of knowledge um, regarding the area of security policy so Ambassador Thomas Greminger thank you so much for being with us on the next page today you're most welcome So that was Ambassador Greminger of the GCSP in conversation with our director, Francesco Pisano. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback, please do leave us a comment on the episode or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to get notified as episodes are released. You can even share our episode on social using the hashtag NextPagePod. We'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to follow along with projects happening here at the Library and Archives, please follow us on Twitter at UNOG Library or search for us on Facebook at United Nations Library and Archives Geneva. We hope your summer is going well and until next time, 